Take your Bibles, it's a real privilege to be here. Take your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 4. James and the fourth chapter. It's been a joy to get to know Brother Ken. And uh, it's really helpful to, to find guys like him. It's encouraging and uh, helps, helps keep us going on. James chapter 4. If, uh, if you didn't get an outline, there should be some in the back and they can be helpful for you. Um, if for no other reason, you'll know about when I'm going to be done. So there's light at the end of the tunnel. James chapter 4, and we're going to read verse 13 to 17. Listen to the word of God. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Father, help us this morning as we open up this wonderful text of Scripture, this exceptionally uh, relevant and practical text to us. And, and may your spirit work through, uh, through my weakness. Uh, honor your word uh, despite the uh, weakness of the servant, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, just going to dive straight into the text. I'm not going to tell you a funny story or a joke. Maybe I'll fit one in somewhere along the way. I've always really wanted to preach through this text, but I've never taken the opportunity. I've always just picked a book and, and gone through it, and I never got to James, and so I thought, well, I got one shot here, and so this is really a dear text to me, and so we're, we'll tackle it this morning. Um, our approach is really simple. We're just going to walk through the text together. This will feel a little bit probably like a uh, college class or a Bible class for a little while, and then we'll, we'll get a little preachy towards the end, all right? So that's kind of the, the path we're going to take. So if you have your outline, number, or Roman numeral number one, we're just going to take a walk through the text. We're just going to take kind of a leisurely stroll. This really isn't a particularly difficult text to understand, and so we're not going to try to be as profound as we can possibly be, just kind of wet our feet, um, and, and it really divides up nicely into the verses, so we'll just kind of walk through uh, each verse real briefly. Letter A is a plan proposed, a plan proposed here in the text. Verse 13, come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. This is James, when James says, come now, it's his way of saying, come on, let's think about this for a minute. It's, it's kind of what a, a mother does when, when you're going from the house to the car to get into church and your toddler makes a detour through a mud puddle. And you say, come on, what are, you, are you thinking that's kind of what's happening here. What James is saying, come on, think about this. Here's what the text is about. It's about a businessman or businessmen who are making a plan, but they're not thinking through it very well. But he does have a plan, and he's proposed a plan. It's a three-step plan, and it includes, number one, a when. A when, today or tomorrow. And every plan has an element of time, right? When is this going to happen? And in this case... Our 
businessman's plan is going to be implemented, he believes, today or tomorrow. This is the very near future. Secondly, the, the plan is what? What? It involves a what. What is he going to do? And the text says he's going to go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade. And so it involves a place, a duration, an activity. He's going to go to such and such a place. He's going to stay for a certain amount of time. And he's going to trade. He's going to buy low and sell high. It's a it's an old business strategy, and it's still in use today. And then why, the reasons why he's going to do this. That's number three, the why. And the why is for profit, the last word there in verse three. He's going to make a profit. That's the end result of the plan. And, and we're just going to ask why one more time. Why make a profit? And, and the answer could be, that our businessman has to pay the bills and feed his family. But the word here, the Greek word cardino, has the idea of gain. That is to say, uh, he's going to be in a better financial position than when he started. And why does he want to do that? Well, as, as we get into the context of James 4, the whole chapter, and even into James 5, the reason that we're going to make a profit or, or gain is so that we can satisfy a desire for pleasure, okay? So a businessman has a desire for pleasure and profit is going to be one of the tools to meet that desire. And we'll come back to that idea later. But verse 13 is a plan proposed. Letter B is a reality check in verse 14. Let, verse 14 is a reality check. Plans are all well and good, right? But they have to be rooted in reality. I could plan to have lunch on the International Space Station, but there are some pretty significant realities standing in my way of doing that. And James reminds our, our businessmen here of two universal realities that, that threaten their plan. Number one is that we don't know the future. That's really a basic truth. You see that there in verse 14? You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. That's not particularly profound. You really don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You can guess and you might be right because most of your days are the same. Most of your plans happen. But how many times have you heard someone say, my life changed dramatically in just that one instant? And it was very unexpected and very sudden. We have an idea of what the future is like, barring an unexpected event. But we, we don't have to have lived for very long until we learn that we ought to expect the unexpected. You've, you've heard that before. We don't plan for car accidents or heart attacks, natural disasters. We don't plan for being victimized by criminals, but we know that these things can happen, and they can happen to us or to those we love, and in a moment, all of our plans can change, and we just don't know what is in the future. And the second great truth in verse 14, this part of this reality check, when James says, stop and think a little, think for a moment, is that we don't live very long. Okay? We don't live very long. The word James uses here is mist. He says you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Okay? F mist, fog. Fog is a short-lived phenomenon. It, it rolls in and it burns off. It lasts about until you finish your first cup of coffee. And life is like that. It's very short-lived. The older I get, the faster time goes by, and the more keenly I'm aware of my own mortality. 
I, I ache in more places. I heal slower. I run slower. My mind doesn't work as good as it used to. And at 35, I can tell you about the reality that I'm not getting younger and stronger. I'm getting older and weaker. Add to that, to the reality that we don't live long, there, there's also a reality that we're really fragile. We're really f- fragile. We don't know the future, and, and the truth of the shortness of life is even more apparent and more powerful. In our body, a few cells can mutate into cancer, and our lives are threatened. Something as small as the Ebola virus or a bacteria like Salmonella invades our bodies, and who knows whether we will we will live or die. But the absolutely inescapable reality here is that every single person dies, and even a long life in view of eternity is really, really, really short. And death is something that is no respecter of, of our plans. Uh, I had a cousin who was uh, 33 years of age, and, and one night he went to Subway, he he bought a foot long and he ate half of it and he rolled up the other half and he put it uh, in his backpack and he got on his motorcycle and he's going to finish his sandwich when he got home and he ran off the road into a tree and he died. And the simple plan of finishing my sandwich was interrupted by sudden death. Plans are left unfulfilled because we are a vapor that vanishes. And, and someday, we don't know when, but our own plans will be thwarted and ended by our death because we don't live very long. Letter C in verse 15, we're going to call verse 15 a proposed condition. That's a, that's a little bit, let me try to flesh this out for you. What's, what's the solution? We have a plan. We have these problems. What's our solution? Should we not plan at all? After all, we don't know the future. Our lives are predictably short, maybe unpredictably really short. How then should we go through life? Should we even bother? Uh, we're, we're going to hear in verse 15, Mary, the physical reality that we all experience. Okay? You can take verse 14 to an unsaved person and they will get this. Okay? They understand just by experience that we don't know the future and life is, is really short. But we're going to add some theology in here in verse 15. We don't know the future. Our lives are short. But we're going to learn in verse 15 that there are theological, there are spiritual forces in control of even our physical reality. And so James says in verse 15, You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to add a condition to the businessman's plans. We're going to slow down a little bit in this verse. Bear with me, and I'll try not to make something that's really simple too complex, but I do that sometimes uh, to my shame. When we talk about conditioning this plan or putting a proposed condition to it, we don't mean air conditioning. We're we're talking about a a concept called a condition. Conditions help us to understand that in order for something to happen, something else must happen First, And so that's why they use the word if. If this happens, then that will happen. If this doesn't happen, then that won't happen. Okay? There's a condition in my house around the supper table, and it goes like this. If you finish your food, you can have ice cream. Okay? And if you don't finish your food, you don't get ice cream. Okay? That's a condition. 
If this happens, then that will happen. Or if you finish your schoolwork, then you can go play with your friends. But if you don't, then you can't. And so when we talk about a condition here in verse 15, we're saying if this happens, then that will. And if this doesn't happen, then that won't. So there's a condition here in verse 15. James says to our planners, you ought to say, if, if the Lord wills, then we will live and do this or that. And so the condition here in verse 15 is the will of God, right? If the Lord wills, this will happen. If he doesn't, then it won't. Okay, And that ought to be, James says, a part of the plan. The condition is the Lord's will. And, and let me just talk to you for a minute about the word will. The word will here means desire or, or want or what is pleasing. And so the condition, the condition our businessmen's plans are built on is the Lord's desire or what the Lord wants or what gives the Lord pleasure. So we could read it this way. If the Lord wants, we will do this or that. Okay? Um, we could read it this way. If, if it gives the Lord pleasure, we will live and do this or that. And so James says we frame our plans as conditional upon God's good pleasure. Okay? And then he says that we ought to do this. We ought to say that because whether or not we say it, our plans are conditional on God's good pleasure. Just recognize the reality here. Okay? Uh, ad- admitting whether or not this is reality doesn't, doesn't change the fact that it is. Now there's, there's two specific variables here in verse 15 tied directly to the Lord's will. And you can see them real clearly. If the Lord wills, number one, we will live. Okay? If the Lord wills, we will live. If it's the good pleasure of God, we will live. If, and the flip side of that is, of course, if it's not God's pleasure, then we won't live, right? Or if God doesn't will, we won't live. And that's a really heavy statement. We'll try to open that up a little more in a bit. But that's a simple biblical reality. If God desires, I'll be alive tomorrow. And if God doesn't desire that I be, I won't be. And so plans have to be contingent or conditioned on a reality that I can't fully control. And that is God's will. Secondly, um, part of the condition is we will do. We will live or we will do. God may desire that I live, but he may not desire that I do what I was planning on doing. Plans change, right? For a, a million different reasons, and death is only one of them. In the construction world, rain might be a reason that your plans change. Toothaches might be one. Sick kids might be a reason for your plans to change. And all that is wrapped up in the design and the good pleasure of God because James is saying here that God ultimately controls all the variables, all the things that can and and do happen that affect our lives. God is in control of them, and he controls them according to his will or his desires or what brings him pleasure ultimately. And that, if we stop here, we'll open up just a gigantic can of worms. And, and so I'm just going to crack it, and you can open it, and Ken can try to put them all back in. We're, we're just going to move on to verse 16. We're going to leave God in control of everything, and Ken can explain it. Verse 16 is an unexpectedly severe charge, an unexpectedly severe charge. When you read this, verse 16 kind of comes as a bit of a shock when he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. 
James is taking the plans of the businessmen, okay, and from verse 13, he's, he's adding the phrase, if the Lord wills to the front of it, or because the, because the businessmen don't say, if the Lord wills, James says, you're arrogant, and you are, in fact, evil. In other words, not taking verse 15 and adding it to verse 13, not taking the condition of the Lord's will and adding it to our plans, James says is evil. That's kind of harsh, right? Um, That means for us that verse 15 is a little more than good advice. Okay, verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills and we live, we'll do this or that. This is more than good advice. It's really a matter of humility versus arrogance and good versus evil. That's the conclusion that he draws in verse 16. Letter E is the logical conclusion here in verse 17. Uh, Verse 17, therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. There's two logical conclusions to this. Number one, ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance is not bliss because sinful behavior comes with its own built-in consequences. If we're going to say that the, the plans as they're laid out for us in verse 13 are evil, then they are going to come with their own built-in consequences. If, and, and that's whether or not you recognize that something is evil. Okay? You don't have to recognize drunkenness as evil to get alcohol poisoning okay? or to drive your car into a telephone pole. Um, if we don't realize the, the, that our plans, making plans without the will of God involved is wicked, we're still going to suffer the consequences that come from making a plan and wanting to execute it and then something happens to, to cause us not to be able to do those plans and our natural reaction is to get angry and frustrated. Okay? And we're going to see that in verse 1 to 3 of chapter 4. And so there's still consequences whether or not we know this. So when, when, when James talks about to the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin, this doesn't, he's not saying, it's, therefore it's better for you not to know anything. Okay? That, that's not what he's saying. Ignorance is not bliss. Number two, the privilege of knowledge then brings moral responsibility. The privilege of knowledge brings moral responsibility. This is, just, this is more than just a rule to follow. Uh, though I might add that it's not less than that, James is really giving us life-saving advice here. Uh, Submitting our desires, our plans, to God's desires brings with it a a freedom from wanting to kill people. (laughs) Really? Yeah, uh, that's what verse 2 says. Um, You want something, you don't get it, and so you, you kill people, okay? And so he's helping us in verse 17 to avoid trying to kill people, okay? And so, and so the privilege of knowledge brings more responsibility. If you know this, you have to do it, okay? You have to do it. All right, Roman numeral number two. Let's consider the truths of the text. That's just a walk through the text. Now let's just go back and kind of ponder and, and pull out some of the implications of, of the text. Letter A, I want to stop and consider the nature of life. We're going to stop in verse 14 when, when James asked the question, what is your life? What is the nature of our life? We need to consider this. We need to consider it carefully. 
we already know from our study, from what we already did in verse 14, we don't know the future and we don't live very long. Our lives are full of uncertainty, they're brief. And now let's just combine these two. We know our death is in the future, but we don't know the future, therefore we don't know when we're going to die, we only know that we're going to. Does that make sense? We're going to combine those two. I don't know the future, but life is short, so I'm going to combine them. I don't know when that's going to happen. So what is our life? Three things, very, very quickly, three things about your life. Number one, it's marked by a beginning. It's marked by a beginning. Uh, we could, I suppose, wander into Mormon theology that says your life doesn't have a beginning and you're just a soul floating around until you get stuck into a body, but we're not going to go there. The Bible teaches us that our life is marked by a beginning. That is, letter A, begun by God's own hand. Our life is begun by God's own hand. Remember, remember when you made your mom and dad so uncomfortable by uh, asking them, where do babies come from? Okay, and, and they stutter and they stammer and, uh, and they make up this whole business about a stork, right? Because, because it's not a place we like to go with kids. But even, it tells us that even three-year-olds are aware that they come from somewhere. They understand that there was a time when they didn't exist and now they do. And so they ask the question in their simple mind, where did this all start? How did I get here? And James' terminology in verse 14, look at it. He says that our life is something that appears. It appears. You are but a, a mist that appears. Appears from where? Well, we didn't create ourselves. And, and I think it's inherently apparent to, to most of us that there's more to us, more to who we are than just the sexual product of our parents, okay? More than just a an amorous evening between mom and dad. There's something more to this. In Psalm 139, verse 13, you can jot that down, deals with this, says it beautifully. When, when the psalmist says, you formed my inward parts, you wove me in your mother's womb. And so the beginning of our life was marked by the hand of God knitting us together in our mother's womb. We're the result of a sperm and an egg, yes, but more than that, we're the unique creation of God woven together by God's good pleasure and his own hands. If we take Psalm 139 seriously, if God doesn't weave a child together in the womb, that child doesn't exist. He doesn't get woven together. And so our life is begun by the very hand of God. Uh, the Old Testament is full of, full of evidence and, and witness to the reality that children are the product of God's good pleasure. And when children are absent, they are, that is also God's business. And wh- so when we speak about humility and submitting ourselves to the will of God, we recognize that our very existence or our appearance, is the word in verse, verse 14, is due to the will of and the work of God. So our life is marked by a beginning which is begun by God's own hand, but let it be, it's begun by ordinary means. Ordinary means. And that's a Puritan phrase that just means the normal, natural course and flow of things. We recognize that God uses means to accomplish his will. Jesus' birth, Jesus was a child, right? And his birth was a historical anomaly because he 
was born to a, a virgin. Though every child is knit together by the hand of God in the womb, every child also has a mother and a father. That's the way that God has designed it to be. So we're going to say that no child is ever born except by the will of God, and we're also going to say that no child is ever born, with the exception of Jesus, without a mother and a father. So our life is marked by a beginning. Number two, our life lasts for a little while. Our life lasts for a little while. Some people live what we would call a a long life. I have a dear old friend named Russ who's 95 years of age this spring. Um, there's a dear lady who used to come to our church once in a while who's 100 years of age now, and we can, we can say, wow, that's, that's a long life. And compared to most, it is. But if you compare it to a California redwood tree, it's not that long. If you compare it to the span of history, it's not that long. If you compare it to eternity, it's not even a drop in the bucket. Psalm 90 says these sobering words, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years. Most of us will die probably in our 70s or 80s, and some will die sooner. I I have an ever-increasing number of friends and acquaintances my age or younger who who have passed away, kids I went to school with, kids I used to play with. Um... But some, some people, many people will live to be 90 or even 100, but that's, that's not really that long. Do you know how I know that's not that long? Because I'm halfway to 70 now. I'm, I'm 35 now. I've, my life is likely about half over. And it seems like the second half is moving along a lot faster than the first half. Even if my life is only a third of the way over and I live to be 105, it's still not going to last that long. And who knows, I, I may even die tomorrow. When I was a little boy, the last of the World War I veterans were still alive. They're, they were still there. There's none left anymore. In, in a few years, there's not going to be any more World War II soldiers remaining. They're rapidly disappearing, and an entire generation has, has been taken away from us and then and then soon my parents generation is going to be the one that disappears and then my generation and life is really really short and the biblical pictures of of the longness if you will of human life aren't very encouraging the bible uses pictures like this your life is like grass that sprouts up and withers or scorched by the sun. Your life is like a flower that blooms and then it fades. And here in James 4, your life is like a fog that pops up and disappears before lunchtime. What is your life? Well, it is, it is very, very short. And number three, our life, what is our life? It vanishes. It vanishes. If the shortness of life is depressing, I think this next phrase is even more so. Your life, James says, he answers the question for us, what is your life? Well, your life is a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. If something vanishes, it disappears what? With, without a trace. That's, that's the idea here. It doesn't mean go invisible. It means to disappear without a trace. That's, that's the idea. Uh, nobody says at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, boy, uh, I sure can see the signs of the fog this morning. I can tell that there was a, a dilly of a fog. No, mists just come from nowhere and they disappear into nowhere. And and as far as the earth goes, for the vast majority of us, our lives here on this earth, we will just completely vanish. 
the possessions that we've gathered up are going to be spread out and they're going to disappear. Our influence is going to wane and fall away. And even that last marker, we, we, I'm going to carve my name in rock and I'm going to sit it over my cold, dead body. That's not going to last forever either. And we're just going to vanish. We're just going to disappear. That's the nature of our life. And I, I can't help but think of the, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. Solomon sum, sums up his word, his, his, his existence in one word. Futility. Futility of futilities. All is futility, he says. You know what futility is? Futility is doing something that it turns out really doesn't do anything at all. It's like, it's like watering a rock and hoping it will grow. It's like cheering for the Vikings. It's like... Um, <laughs> Fishing in the desert, okay? Um, futility would be me picking up a guitar and trying to play. It's one of those things that is just entirely fruitless. Solomon, on the other hand, had basically unlimited resources of money. He had unlimited resources of pleasure, and he had the power to get anything that he didn't have. Solomon didn't have a radio, so you know what he did? He just bought the choir, okay? Uh, Solomon had not only uh, a good wife that he writes about in uh, the book of Song of Solomon, he had 999 other ladies who were available to him at any time, day or night, depending on his pleasure. He had peace and prosperity, he had respect, he had education, and he looks at it all in the light of a life as his life is fading away, he's almost vanished, and he says, this is just futility. This is just futility, and that's the nature of our life. And, and I dare say, and, and I don't want to depress you even further, but I will a little bit, and then we'll come out of it. Most of our lives are spent in the pursuit of futility. The end of our life is near, and any sort of legacy we leave only lasts a little while longer than we do. We spend, we spend our time trying to make money to pay for the house that's going to get bulldozed over and pay for the car that's going to rust out and so on and so forth. That's just the nature of our life. In order to just stay alive, we have to spend so much energy just trying to keep alive and, and, and it's ultimately a lot of it is futility. Our life is like a mist. It appears for a little while, then it vanishes. Letter B, we want to look at the sovereignty of God, this second truth. First is the nature of our life. The second is we want to look at the sovereignty of God. And for the kids, when we talk about the sovereignty of God, what we mean is that God can do whatever he wants because he is God. Okay? And God can do whatever he wants because he is God. If God felt like it, he could turn the oceans into Mountain Dew. Wouldn't that be great? And he wouldn't have to ask anybody. He could just do it. He could paint the moon purple. He could give all horses eight legs. He could make, imagine this, kids. God could make vegetables taste like candy bars, okay, if he wanted to do that. He can do anything he wants. We talked about God's will or God's desire and how God's will is the great condition of life. But I, let me just leave those things aside for a moment. Just spend some time considering the desires of God as it relates to my life and my activities because that's, that's what is implied for us here in verse 15. The sovereignty of God over my life. Look at verse 15 again. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. Well, that's great, isn't it? It's, it's comforting to know that as long as the Lord wants me alive, there's absolutely nothing in the world that can take me down. 
That's great. That's true and it's good. But then we have to ask the question, what if the Lord doesn't will? Then we won't live? And that seems to be what James is saying here. He's saying that we're kept alive merely by the will of God. And God is claiming here, he's claiming for himself the right to end life whenever he wants, regardless of our plans, right? This is people, let's think about this in verse 13 again. These are people who feel healthy enough to go on a year-long business trip and to conduct business, and they're going to they're going to come home and enjoy their profits. And James says, look, you might plan on leaving tomorrow, but if God doesn't even will for you to be alive, you won't be. That's a, that's a little bit sobering. So let me challenge you to kind of take this to heart because uh, our, our culture, our Christian culture, my generation especially, has has really decided that life and death are not in the hands of God. They are they are in the hands of the environment, okay? And I, and I don't mean environmentalism and so forth, but, but I mean the great presumption that, that my generation lives by is that the reason we live or die is, is because of the food that we eat or the food that we don't eat, not the will of God. Our, our culture is obsessed by food, nutrition, and, 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 and we seem to think that death is coming into us by the way of our mouth. But that's not what the Bible tells us, okay? Now, don't forget, uh, our bodies are the temple, okay? Um, but, but I think even Christians are tempted to worship the temple and not the, the God of the temple. But the biblical reason that we die here in verses 14 and 15 is not because of what comes on us from outside, not what comes on us from our environment, whether that be air pollution or pesticides or tornadoes or cancer or car accidents, those things are just the means by which we die. The reason we die ultimately is because the Bible says God has appointed unto each person once to die and after that the judgment. And the day that God changes his mind about that will be the day that we can perhaps think about skipping out in the dying process. There's that fascinating and a little bit troubling story in Luke chapter 13 where Jesus is considering a tower that fell down and it killed 18 people. And the question is, well, did these 18 people die because they were bad people? Or did they die because God fell asleep for a little while or God didn't want this to happen? How do we reconcile the sovereignty of God who could have stopped the tower from falling and the fact that these people died untimely deaths. Jesus said this. He said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Now, what he doesn't mean is that if, 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 you, don't, if, if you don't come forward a, at a service and, and give your heart to Jesus, your tower is going to fall on you too. Okay? That's not the point. He means that death is coming to everyone, and there's final death for those that refuse to repent. At the end of the day, death is death by whatever means it comes, right? And, and we can and, and we should try to eliminate the means of death that we're able to, okay? Buckle your seatbelts when you go home. And when you get home to lunch, don't drink antifreeze, okay? Drink something good and, and, and wholesome. But never forget that, that God's will determines every day whether we live or die. Jesus said in Luke 12, 25 to 26, which of you by worrying 
can add a single hour to his lifespan? How many hours have we lost worrying about our life? Or when the kids are sick, how many hours have we lost worrying about their life? And, And Jesus says you can't by worry add even an hour to it. Then Jesus says this. This is fascinating. If you, if you then can't do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? You hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, you can do all this worry. You can't add an hour to life. But you know what it is to me? It, it's a little thing. I am, I'm God. I can add an hour to your life. I can add a year. I can add 20 years. I can make it as long or short as I want. It's a very small thing to God to add hours to life. We can't, no matter how hard we try. Our days are numbered before we're even born, Psalm 139, verse 16 says. You haven't lived a day, and God knows exactly how many you're going to live. And, and we don't set that number. We, we don't get to vote on it. We don't get to make a motion. We can't add, we can't subtract to them. God is sovereign over my life. And that's something that we have to come to terms with as the people of God. Number two, God is also sovereign over my activities. He's sovereign over my life and over my activities. We ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do. And this is typically what we think of when we think of the will of God. What does God want me to do? What kind of decisions does he want me to make? And sometimes we, we presume, uh, I think a little simplistically, but, but I do this often, uh, we presume that if we make the right decisions, the road is going to be peaceful and easy. We're going we're to find the path of blessing, if you will. But the obvious reality here is just because we're alive doesn't mean that other things are going to thwart our plans. And in the case here in James, it, it may have been God's will for the people in verse 13 to live but not to go, or to live and go but not to stay there a year, or to live and go and stay there a year and not trade, or to live and go and stay and trade and not make a profit. There's all sorts of pit stops on, on this path, that, and an infinite number of variables, any one of which can just throw the entire set of plans in disarray. And so our activities, the things we do, are subject to the will of God. Now, let me give you a little bit of theologian speak here for a minute because that helps you think that I'm very intelligent and educated, and that's good because I want you to think that about me. We divide the... I'm just kidding, by the way. We divide the will of God into two categories, letter A, into God's revealed will. God's revealed will. When we want to know God's will, if you want to know God's will, the first place you look is the Bible, because God has taken some of his will and revealed it to us. For instance, the Bible says, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God. When you want to know what the will of God is, go to that verse and say, okay, I, I, I may not know what the will of God is for whether I should go fishing or golfing, but I know that the will of God is for me to give thanks, okay? And so we begin by the revealed will of God, give thanks. We don't have to wonder about that one. When you make plans, start there. Start with the Bible. It is God's will that you be saved. God wills that all men should come to repentance. It is God's will that you steer clear of sin. Uh, if, If you're making plans to move in with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or you're making plans to engage in financial corruption you're making plans to rob a bank 
you can save yourself a world of hurt by saying, is it God's will for me to engage in that activity? Okay? And, and open your Bible, and it's a no-brainer. Okay? So that's one way that we submit to the authority and the sovereignty of God. We submit to his word. And then there's letter B, God's secret will. God's secret will. And, and that means theologians use that term just to, as something that it is God's will that he has, part of his will that he hasn't told us in the Bible. We know full well that God doesn't give us the answers to all our questions, especially when it comes in uh, to the future. If we could see the future, we'd know what stocks to invest in, right? Uh, I was reading the other day about uh, somebody who's, who said, you know, wouldn't it be great to go back 15, 20 years and buy Apple stocks for $5 a pop and now they're worth 800 or something, you know? That's, that's all you'd have to know is a little, s- one tiny detail about the future and you could take your 1000 bucks then and it would be worth a lot now and, and, and Ken and I could live in cabins and nice houses instead of build them for other people, okay? And that would be great. That would be, but God hasn't chosen to show us that. It's, it's part of his plan that Apple stocks go way up, but he doesn't tell us that. It's part of his secret will for his own purposes. If we could see the future, we'd know not to get on that plane or drive through that snowstorm or eat that chicken. There's probably hundreds of thousands of different forces at work in our lives at any given time. Some of them we're aware of, some of them we're not, and, and God knows them all. He sets the future, but he doesn't necessarily tell us and so for these businessmen here in verse 13 they don't know if they're going to arrive in the city they don't know if they're going to find a place to stay they don't know if they're going to have to return home early they don't know if they're going to be able to sell and market their product they don't know any of these things about their activities they don't these are the secret will of god he knows all these things but he keeps them secret and we find them out a moment at a time let her see. I want us to consider how are we doing. Ooh, I'm going to try to go fast. I have way too much material. Let her see. Let's consider the dangerous demands of desire. And then we're going to apply the text. The dangerous demands of desire. Verse 16 says this. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. Now let me define boasting and arrogance for you in James 4. It's simply this trying to get what I want no matter who stands in my way, okay? Trying to get what I want no matter who stands in my way. That's why our friends in verse 13, our businessmen, did not say if the Lord wills and we live, we will live, if the Lord wills, we will live and do such and such because the Lord's will was either not on their radar or they didn't care, okay? They weren't interested in the Lord's desires. They weren't interested in what gives the Lord pleasure they were only interested in their own will and their own pleasure and there's a theme that runs all the way through chapter four and into chapter five and that theme is one of desire there's a war raging in in my heart between my desires and your desires this is verse one and two look at verse one and two let's spend a little bit of time here What's the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? By the way, this is a great place to go because we have quarrels and conflicts all the time, don't we? Um, the ones that we have at home with our wife, we don't talk about because we, we just show up at church, hold hands, and, and, and we're all good. Okay, but sometimes we have them in church, sometimes we have them at, at work. And, and what's the source of those quarrels and conflicts? Well, it is that your pleasures are waging war in your members. You lust and don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You don't have, 
Because you don't ask, you ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Okay? So we have desires that are driven by our pleasures. We have desires that are driven by our pleasures and so our desires make demands and they are, they are dangerous. Desires control our heart. They control our passions. They drive our actions. We desire the things that we think will make us happy. Okay? That's, it's really that simple. We desire the things that we think will make us happy. And so we set, off our, we set our minds and we set our hearts off in pursuit of those desires. And the key question is here, if we were to put chapter 4 in one question, it would be simply this. Whose desires control me? God's desires or mine? And arrogance is being controlled by my own desires. And humility is being controlled by God's desires or submitting my desires to God's desires. It means what God wants becomes what I want. That's the essence of humility. You see that in verse 6. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, verse 7, submit to God. That's humility. Who are the proud? Well, the proud are the ones in verse 2 who have desires that bring them to murder, that bring them to fight and to quarrel. In verse 3, you have those who have desires that drive them to go to God in prayer and ask Him for the same stuff they were willing to kill people for, okay? So, uh, I lust and I don't have, so I commit murder. Uh, I I covet, I don't get it, and so I'm just going to go ask God for it, okay? Um, Fighting didn't get it for me. Quarreling didn't get it for me, so maybe I'll go to God in prayer and he'll get it for me, okay? Uh, really? Okay? You think that's going to work? That doesn't work, okay? God is, verse 6, opposed to the proud. He gives grace instead to the humble. Well, what does a humble person look like? A humble person submits to God, verse 7. A humble person, verse 10, finds that his exaltation comes from God, not from fulfilling his own desire. So let's just take out two really obvious truths from verse 16, Okay? Number one, unconditioned plans or unconditional plans come from arrogant hearts. Those who don't say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do such and such, are arrogant people. And that's a really severe charge here, isn't it? But arrogance is more than pride. When we think arrogance, we tend to think of it in terms of pride. But arrogance is more than pride because arrogance not only exalts myself, it puts down other people. Okay? It's not just building me up, it's tearing other things down. Arrogance doesn't just say, I can do this myself. Arrogance says, I can do this myself and no one and no thing can stop me from getting what I want. And so a plan without God's will as its condition comes from an arrogant heart. It, it doesn't acknowledge God's desires. The whole reason for this business adventure in verse 13, remember, is to make a profit. And what's the profit for? The profit is to fulfill my desires. And when my desires take precedence over God's desires, my desires are above God's desires, I'm above God, and the, yes, that's really arrogant. Okay? That's, that's how you get to that severe of language. Arrogant hearts, then, number two, arrogant hearts are evil hearts. All such boasting is evil, paneros. It's the same word used uh, for Satan in the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from the evil one. At the heart of evil is the desire to replace God with something else. In this case, here, we're going to replace God with my own desires. And when what I want is more important to me than what God wants, 
I'm arrogant, and I'm evil, and that is going to show itself the very moment that I don't get what I want. Okay? When I don't get what I want, I'm going to show you the evil of my heart. Again, verse 1 and 2. You have quarrels, you have conflicts, you have murder, you have uh, fighting. Why do people fight? James makes it clear. You fight because you're not getting what you want. Or in verse 2, you, you kill those who stand in the way of what you want. Murder is just getting rid of the person who's standing in the way of what I want. That's what it is. Fighting and quarreling and conflicts are there because there's, there's things and there's people standing in the way of me getting what I want, and I'm going to fight through them. Let me give you a quick example. I want to leave the house at 8 o'clock in the morning. My five-year-old is tying his shoes for the 15th time, trying to get the loops the exact same size, and it's 8.05, okay? I have my desire, and my five-year-old sitting on the step is standing in the way of my desire. What's the natural reaction? It's anger. Hey, what's the matter with you? Get in the car. Can't you tie your stinking shoes in the car? This is so difficult. Go to a restaurant. I want my steak well done. There's pink in it. What do you do? Hey, hey, dummy. Is it so hard to cook a steak? Don't you cook like a hundred of these every night? Okay. I don't get what I want. So I get angry and I start to fight. That's evil. I don't know if this happens up here. This happens down in the cities. I want to drive 62. The guy in front of me wants to drive 58, and the guy behind me wants to drive 64. The idiot in front of me is too slow. The fool behind me won't back off. What do I do? I get angry. If we were to stop at the same gas station, I wouldn't talk to them. I want nothing to do with them. Mr. Slowpoke, four miles an hour too slow. And what is the, what's the matter with this guy? He thinks, it's, thinks he's in a race. Okay? I want these morons off the road. They're standing in the way of my desires. My desire is only to go 62. Okay? But still... I'm angry because I'm not getting what I want. And arrogant hearts are evil hearts because in an arrogant heart, my desires replace God's desires. And when anyone or anything stands in the way of me getting what I want, I'll go so far as to murder as to get it. That's, that's how our hearts are. And by the way, you'll notice in, in history, anytime a dictator gathers power to himself, ultimate power and he's not checked by anybody that's what he does whoever stands in his way is is murdered okay let's apply the text and be done three quick applications how are we doing Ooh, we're gonna make it letter a number your days number your days one of my favorite verses in all the bible psalm 90 verse 12 teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom it is wise to learn that our days are are numbered the foolish person doesn't consider this truth. Here's, here's simply how I apply it, okay? Uh, I don't know how long I'll live, maybe a month, maybe a year, maybe 40 years, maybe 50 years, but I, I know that I'm not going to live on this earth for 100 more years, okay? I, I'm fairly confident I'm not going to live to 135. Moses said in Psalm 90, verse 12, 70, maybe 80 years, so at least I have that sort of a number to work with, okay? He, he threw a number out there for me. That's good. Remind yourself your days are numbered and just do some simple math and you can get a rough idea of what that number might be. You might miss it by 20 or, or 30 years, 
but in light of eternity, you're going to be pretty close. If I was going to ask you when Abraham died, what was the date? If you got within 20 years, you'd say, oh, yeah, I'm really good. Okay? So if you can get within 20 years of your own death, that's, that's helpful. It reminds us, if we, when we number our days, of our mistness. Okay? That's what you are. That's what your life is. It's a mist. You're going to vanish. You don't know exactly when. But does, just because you don't know exactly when doesn't mean that you can't have some sort of general idea. And so Moses says, Lord, teach us to number our days so we may present to you a heart of wisdom. We live differently when we have deadlines. Okay? If you have a deadline in mind and most of you are young and just out of college, and you know this. There's, there's something about a deadline that helps you to get stuff done. Okay? And as long as we think of life as open-ended and not having an end date, we, we, we live as though we're going to live forever when, when we know we're not. So number your days. Letter B, develop biblical instincts. I- instincts are our natural reaction to a given situation, okay? Uh, and they vary from person to person. When, when you're faced with danger, some people stand up and fight. Some people run away. If you wake up a person when they're sleeping, they might scream. If they're a soldier, they'll punch you right in the nose. Okay, it's just a, it's just an instinct. It comes very natural. Uh, it's something that you can learn. Uh, but instincts help to keep us alive. And we have instincts when it comes to handling the uncertain events of life. When when life is coming at us and we don't know what's coming at us. We deal with it often by instinct, and our natural instincts, our instincts that we're born with, or, or the, the instincts that we just sort of absorb from culture are seldom, if ever, biblical instincts. And so the way that we develop them, uh, reacting like the Bible says, is through um, thinking and acting according to God's word, train ourselves to respond biblically until it becomes natural. Let me just challenge you to work on these two instincts in regard to the text. L- work, work towards developing instincts concerning God's view of myself. Concerning God's view of myself. To think of myself instinctively like God does. Because God views things as they actually are, right? And his evaluation is always the proper evaluation. So when we discover and when we learn how God evaluates me and my life and looks at it, We do ourselves really a world of good by just accepting what God says about it because he is always right. And what does God say? God says my life is a vapor. That means it's a mist. It appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. And we're not born thinking that way. We're not born thinking that way. We're born thinking the world exists for me and when I'm gone, it will probably cease to exist. That's kind of how we tend to think. We're born feeling immortal. Uh, and, and on those rare occasions when we consider our imminent death, we, we typically rush to put it out of our minds as quickly as possible. I, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to go there. And that's an instinct. But, but our life is a mist. We're here today and tomorrow will have vanished away. It's kind of a funny phenomenon as I was thinking about this. Uh, remember when social media came along, when, when Facebook and MySpace first came out, it, it gave the, that appearance of immortality. It, you can put your life online for all the world to see, presumably for all time. But, but what we've learned is that even if Facebook never deletes our page, we're still going to just be lost in the obscurity of being just another one of the 
two billion people with cute kids and here's me and my cup of coffee in the morning and, and I can make smiley faces with punctuation marks. Isn't that phenomenal? And we just get lost in that. And, and it promised to give us some sort of immortality, but it, it only makes us uh, perhaps more obscured. We're, we're so easily lost in the gigantic digital world. Today's critical word for online is viral, right? Viral things are, they take the attention of people by storm, but they quickly, usually within a week, vanish away. Because the next video of a puppy snuggling with a kitty is gonna come along, and it's not your puppy, and it's not your kitty, it's somebody else's. People completely forget about you. And, and so we're faced with this reality of vanishing constantly. Even at our very best, we can rise up to 15 minutes of fame, gather up a bunch of likes, but tomorrow we'll fade into obscurity again. And life is like that. That's God's analysis. God's view of me is that I'm a mist. Even if you go on the pages of Scripture, there are really precious few names that are immortalized. Most of us are going to be like, like we talk about groups like the children of Israel. Oh, who were they? They were husbands and fathers and kids, but they have no name. They, they popped up and they disappeared and the generations come and the generations go. That's how most of us are going to live our life. We're going to rise and fall and vanish in almost complete anonymity. It's kind of unfortunate the parents of my generation, our generation for most of us, told us how unique and special and important we are, but, but now we're all middle-aged, average people just like everybody else, right? And, and, and we're starting to understand that we're just kind of like our parents, largely unknown, and we're heading into an uncertain future, and people don't think that we're as special as my mom did, and, and that's difficult to, to grasp. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, we embrace the reality that the Bible gives us here. We remind ourselves of our own mistness until it's ingrained in our very soul. When James says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live, his point isn't to give us a mantra to be endlessly repeated. He's saying you need to think about life in this way. You, you, you ought to have an instinct that says life is exceptionally cer- uncertain, except that it is certainly short. Life is exceptionally uncertain, except it is certainly short. Develop instincts number two in submitting to the sovereignty of God, because life is coming at us a million miles an hour. And if you look back at your life a year ago, you'll see that significant events and changes have almost certainly taken place. Some of those things have made us happy and some of those things have made us sad. And some of, us, some of them have made us downright infuriated and violent in word, if not in deed. But that's the way life is. It comes at us really fast and we're reacting to it all the time. And our natural instincts that we're born with and that the culture gives us is that we should be the sovereign. We make the plans. We figure out a way to overcome the obstacles. And as long as we feel we're in control, we feel safe. Okay? As long as I can control the variables and kind of control everything that's coming at me and, and push things aside and navigate, I'll feel safe. But we need to develop proper instincts to the sovereignty of God, relating to it, submitting to it. Jesus models this really well for, you, for us, doesn't he? In his hour of crisis, remember, what, what do you say when you're, when you're standing at death's door and you get on your knees and you say, God, my Father, your will be done. That's his instinct, right? That just comes naturally out of him. Where does he learn that? Well, think back to the book of Luke 
chapter 2, and what is the first words that come out of Jesus' mouth? He's 12 years old, he's in the temple, and he says when his frantic mother comes to get him, she says, what are you doing? And Jesus says, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? You see, this is, he's 12 years old and he's learned God's business is more important than my business. And so it's really no surprise that when he gets to the hour of his death, he says, your will be done. He's developed a biblical instinct, and we can use that term for Jesus too, in his humanity. That's how he, that's how he worked. Okay, um, let me see. Ooh, I'm on the last page. Letter C. Letter C. We got we to get to the cross. We got to get to the gospel, okay? Letter C is, for our application, run to the cross, O arrogant mist. Run to the cross, O arrogant mist. And I speak to myself. We have to end here because all of us, especially myself, have really failed miserably when it comes to submitting to the will of God. It, it turns out I am the arrogant evil one here in verse 16. And the wonder of the cross is that Jesus died for evil, arrogant people like me. Is there, is there really anything more impulsive in all the world than an arrogant person, the arrogance of another person? They think a lot of themselves and they think little of everyone else. And arrogant people like myself think a lot of myself and at the same time we tend to think little of Jesus. Jesus' friend Judas was an arrogant person driven by his desires. He, he did what the guy he did what James says he would do. He, he wanted and he didn't have, so he committed murder. That was Judas. In the process, he thinks very little of Jesus. He sells Jesus for a handful of silver coins. Imagine that. He traded the eternal Son of God for a little handful of silver coins. And the cross is where Jesus takes on himself the wrath of God against arrogant mists like me, who are willing to trade Jesus for a handful of silver coins if only I can get what I want. Okay? That's me. That's, that's very natural. And Jesus died for that. We have to begin and end here at the cross. Oh, God, forgive me. I am an arrogant mist. God, my desires are set before yours time and time and time again, and I've fought and I've quarreled and I've wanted to kill in order to get them. Isn't it strange that the people you fight with the most is the people you're supposed to love the most? You don't fight with anybody as much as your spouse, almost certainly. Secondly would be your kids, maybe, your parents, the bitterest public quarrels seem to take place in church. But isn't it kind of fitting, really, that those who are closest to, of, to us have the greatest chance of standing in the way of what we want? And Jesus died for people like us, us arrogant mists. Sometimes I think about how much time I spend in prayer, simply praying that God would give me what I want in order to make me happy. I can't get it myself, and I can't get it by killing anybody else, so maybe God will, will give it to me. And, and though I wouldn't have the nerve to say it, get disappointed, frustrated, angry when God stands in the way of me getting what I want. God in his sovereignty, he's doing whatever it is that he wants and he's not falling into line with me and he's not answering my prayer and we get frustrated, we get angry. 
We're arrogant for a morning fog, aren't we? But that's really what the cross is for. It's a place for us arrogant mists just to gather together, receive forgiveness, humble ourselves, and take up new desires, the desire to submit to the Lord's will, whether we live and do or whether we, whether we don't. Father, thank you for this text of Scripture, and thank you for the privilege of teaching it this morning. Father, forgive me an arrogant mist. We get so angry when my plans are thwarted. Father, once again, I submit to your sovereignty that you know what is best. If you live, if you will, I will live and do. And if you don't, that's your will. We submit to it. Father, thank you that Jesus died for arrogant people like me. Thank you that Jesus died for fighting, quarreling, contentious, murderous hearts like mine. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for these reminders from the book of James. Bless us in Jesus' name. Amen.